it may not be time. You you may not have the uh, be in the right headspace for a record like that, you know. But mm-hmm. then when it clicks, it's over, you know. But well, that's the beauty like... of this whole scenario, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like life, like part of the core <laughs> premise of this podcast, or life. Yeah, <laughs> a fully existential, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> We're going deep. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and guys, I have a startling revelation. Startling? Yeah. Are you sitting down? Let me get seated, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Do you know that the name of our podcast is actually a pop culture reference? What, what, what? I mean, we all know that I named the show after a sentence scrawled onto a key that I found in an abandoned building. <laughs> uh, I figured it was just so obscure we could use it and no one would ever know what we were referencing. But now I'm just finding out it's actually a quote from an 80s movie called Rob O. Cop. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I've never heard of this Rob O. Cop. We're going to have to look into this, I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Very, very interesting. You were right. That is a startling revelation. I'm startled. I'm also co-host Jeremy, and I have a question for you, co-host Sean. Oh? How many fingers am I holding up? Mm, four. No, it's five. Can't you Whoa. see? <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Good. You can see then. <laughs> Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I also have a startling revelation. Wow. It's just wow. A, it's a time for that. Yeah. Well, this is recent news to me, but I found out that I am the father of StarCraft II player Scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> Professional StarCraft II player Scarlet. Yeah, I... I understand how that ties into the episode, but I don't know what Scarlet is. That's my daughter's user name on StarCraft 2. Wait, you have a daughter? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I said it's a startling revelation. (laughs) Oh, you're burying the lead. I see. Somebody should tell your wife. Yeah. I, I actually, uh, I told her in advance of recording this episode that that was going to be what I said so as to not startle her. Ah. <laughs> these, these are all lies, but it does tie into the episode. It does. And joining us today, <laughs> and joining us today is the owner of Permanent Records in Los Angeles. Welcome back. For the third time, and I'd buy that for a dollar, Lance Barisi. Thank you. Three, Pete. Stoked to be back with you guys. It's always a pleasure. I want to uh, share the news with y'all that I've decided to write a book, and the title of that book is going to be Zen and the Art of Record Store Maintenance, and chapter one will be on filing the artist under the correct letter of the alphabet. Like to remind oh, yes. every record store employee that Molly Hatchett, Jethro Tull, Franz Ferdinand, Rilo Kylie, Don Caballero, Joyce Manor, Greta Van Fleet, Catherine Wheel, Billy Talent, Clem Snide, Mason Prophet, Pablo Cruz, Rose Royce, Abe Vigoda, and Paul Revere all get filed under the first letter in their band name. And I can't think of it any other thing. but uh pink floyd goes under f right <laughs> exactly i am here for that content i will be purchasing that book because i'm currently undergoing a whole cataloging organizing of my record collection and there are still some that i have questions about 
we could talk all hour about where to file certain artists. It's a an ongoing political conversation at Permanent Records on a daily basis. But at, at the let's not let's <laughs> talk about Marshall Tucker Band. Yes, and and yeah. Marshall Tucker Band should be filed under M in your record collection and in the bins in uh, record stores because there is no person in the Marshall Tucker Band named Marshall Tucker. However, there is a person named Marshall Tucker, and I'm sure we'll get into that. We will a little later, but let's uh, play a song first for the, for the listeners. This is from the self-titled debut from the Marshall Tucker Band? Yes. From 1973, and the title of the track we're going to listen to first is Take the Highway. And that's Side A, Track 1. Now, listening to that, I was hearing some country influence. I was hearing some hard rock going on. I was hearing a little, like, flute. Yeah, a little Jethro Tull. A little, yeah, <laughs> it was, like, a little bit jazzy. There were some kind of gospely, like, backing harmonies. It was, I mean, given its southern nature, I might call it a musical gumbo. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Wow, you're gumbo rolling yourself now. <laughs> yeah, I had to do it. <laughs> Before Sean got to it. Yeah, you just got to get out ahead of it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, this is like 8 Mile where Eminem makes fun of himself first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are in the deep south. Got to get into the gumbo when you're down in the south, you know? True. Yeah, yeah, this bona fide southern rock here. No doubt. So... This is our first, I think, Southern rock album we featured on the program. But we were kind of talking before the episode, like, what is Southern rock? Right. The, the line between Southern rock and country rock, it's very blurry at times, sometimes track to track on any given album. Some country, you know, some uh, records that are filed in hard filed into in the country rocks genre uh, have some southern rock vibes to them and and vice versa but there's a certain kind of uh, overlap in the venn diagram of music i think that where southern rock is nestled kind of perfectly 
if there's a country rock circle, a hard rock circle, and a, a jam band kind of circle, uh, right in the intersection of those three genres is where Southern rock fits pretty perfectly. And like many genres of music, especially subgenres of rock music, it's not like anybody went out of their way to start writing Southern rock music, Southern rock. Um, the term wasn't even ter- uh, coined until 1972 in a uh, an Atlanta newspaper called The Great Speckled Bird, where the uh, author Mo Slotten referred to an Allman Brothers concert as being a, a Southern rock affair. It's also pretty incredible that this is the first Southern rock record that's been brought to I'd Buy That for a Dollar because there are a ton of Southern rock records in bargain bins. It's primarily <laughs> a bargain bin genre aside from some Leonard Skinner records and some Allman Brothers records and obviously some privately pressed albums. Southern rock records almost always are cheap. But yeah, getting back to the vibe of the music that is Southern rock, a lot of what defines Southern rock is a a blending of black and white roots music. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, Dick Sherman, a music historian, um, has cited Lonnie Mack's Memphis as a prototype of what uh, would later be called Southern rock. And I believe that particular track is from the early 60s. And then, you know, even guys who are known as Southern rock through and through uh, Southern rock musicians like Greg Allman uh, said that Southern rock is uh, redundant. It's like saying rock, rock. (laughs) But Uh that's, yeah, it's uh, that said, aside from the, the vibe of the instrumentation in Southern rock, some things that you know I've noticed through my listening of Southern rock albums is some of the lyrical material and subject matter includes uh, love affairs, dreams, desires, hard work, drinking, fighting, and and life on the road. I think those things very specifically are very what's the word common themes. Yes, 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 exactly in the genre. Yeah, what what you heard there on Take the Highway, I think, is a perfect example of the genre. Wow, you were way more prepared for that than I expected. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, I love it. (laughs) I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. I did my homework for this episode. (laughs) Are there any Southern rock bands that you would file under country, or do you think they all pretty much get filed in rock with, like, you know, country influence? There's, can of worms has just been opened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a- absolutely. I mean, Almond Brothers are a Southern rock band, but yeah, I mean, they also get filed, you know, kind of in the jam band world, and they have their fair share of country rock tunes as well. The Marshall Tucker Band is not is not not <laughs> a country rock band, of course. Leonard Skinner is a, a quintessential Southern rock group. And, you know, the harder side of Skinner is a straight up hard rock band. You know, they were considered the Rolling Stones of the United States. It's kind of wild when you think about it. Hmm. The Rossington Collins Band, the Atlanta Rhythm Section, which I found out through doing research of this episode, are former members of the band Classics 4, well known for... Oh, weird. Yeah, I had no idea until I dug into this. That that was the case. Uh, the Amazing Rhythm Aces, Barefoot Jerry, Wet Willie. I think Wet Willie is a partially country rock type band as well. Black Oak, Arkansas. Their album High on the Hog is, you know, very Southern rock, but their whole catalog is not fully Southern rock material. Blackfoot is another Southern rock band that, that like Leonard Skinner, gets hard. Molly Hatchett's in the same zone. Uh, Johnny and his brother Edgar did some Southern rock material, but they also did, you know, Edgar Winter did Frankenstein, which is a prog opus. Grinder Switch is kind of more of a country-leaning uh, Southern rock band, as is um, as are the Outlaws. And um, yeah, some people even consider LaRue and ZZ Top 
Southern rock bands. And I'll, uh, I'll go along with that. You know, as Charlie Daniels said, in this genre, there are no dividing lines between country and rock and roll. And, it, you know, Southern rock is basically a genre of music that retains uh, the hillbilly spirit and just rocks like a mother. Straight from the horse's <laughs> mouth there. Charlie Daniels Amazing. band, too. I don't think I mentioned them. But, yeah, Charlie Daniels solo material uh, is killer. It's uh, I all three of the the albums from the early seventies are amazing, and all three of them are fairly inexpensive too. But we won't get into uh, recommendations just yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I interrupted you with my surprise, but you mentioned the classics four became the Atlanta rhythm section. They're known for the spooky song "Love's Kind of Crazy" with a spooky little girl like you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, I'm very impressed with the amount of homework you did. <laughs> You're raising the bar here. I feel like I kind of phoned it in on the Grand Max episode by bringing just a member of the band to tell the story, and I didn't really have <laughs> I didn't really have you know much to go on anyway. So I figured you know going straight to the source was really the only option for that episode. But there's plenty of information uh, out there on the Marshall Tucker band, and I I, I dove deep. I have to say, I was half expecting since since last time you brought on Tim McCorkle from Grand Max, when I saw that there was a member of the Marshall Tucker Band with the last name McCorkle, yeah. I, I, I half expected you to show up and surprise us with that member. <laughs> we <laughs> brought another McCorkle. We only talked to McCorkles on uh, my episodes of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. <laughs> You know, it's funny, though, that you mentioned that because literally last night I was like, I think I could get a hold of uh, Doug Gray from the Marshall Tucker Band. He's the only surviving member and he's done interviews on other podcasts and I've listened to them and I was like, I think I could just get Doug to come on here. And I was like, I can't do that again. Not two episodes in a row. <laughs> next time. You can save that for next time. Next time. time. You come back. <laughs> Every other one. <laughs> right on. Let's do that. I'm certainly going to share this with Doug. I've already planned on sharing this episode with him. So hopefully we'll get a reaction out of him at the very least. So I wanted to get the facts straight just for Doug. Perfect. Whatever it takes. Yeah, right? Well, which song would you like to play next for Doug and everyone else listening? <laughs> I think for Doug and everyone else, we got to go with the big Marshall Tucker hit. Can't you see next? Legendary song. And that's side A, track two. That's the one. That's the one. I'm gonna cry. 
what a stunning song. It's not surprising that that track was a hit for the Marshall Tucker band. Um, and for those of you who couldn't envision what the band might have looked like when they were playing that, I highly recommend going after listening to this podcast in its entirety and going on YouTube to uh, watch the video from the 1973 Macon, Georgia show at the Grand Opera House that it also includes part of Ramblin', which we'll get to here shortly. Watching the band play live is a wholly different experience and really kind of takes the Marshall Tucker band, I think, to the next level. You know, you got four vocalists right up front on stage, all harmonizing together. They're playing in sync perfectly. And all the while, you got Toy Caldwell playing those leads with his thumb. He only plays his Les Paul with his he only picks with his thumb it's out of control it's a really unique style playing and we'll mm. we'll get into that a little more i'm sure later but i also want to mention that you know one of the things about take the highway that i love the most is that that turn after the second verse on uh, at around the third a, a minute and 45 seconds point of the song the band locking in the first song we featured oh yeah yeah take the highway the band locks into a multiple minute jam where it's just a repetitive groove with the flute just kind of soaring over the top in a way that you wouldn't expect on a, a record that gets filed in the southern rock genre. It sounds more like a European prog album or something off of a, a kraut rock record. They, they're really locked in. And that's one of my favorite parts about needle dropping records like this that you've seen in the bins over and over and over and just kind of have ignored and they blend into the background of everything else that's that's in the bargain bin is discovering that the the material included on said album is uh, just as good or better than some of the 30 40 50 and 100 dollar plus records that everybody holds in in high regard and just you know the fact that this was a very well performing album it sold a lot of copies is really the only reason that it's cheap it's not a matter of the the quality of the music it's a matter of the fact that there are just millions of copies of this record out there and they're just the supply is just happens to be at least at the moment and as we all know that changes over time the, the supply is uh higher than the demand but all it takes is a podcast like this to shine a light on the first Marshall yeah. Tucker album to to flip that equation and put this record into a different uh, price category. I got to say, it's pretty bold of you to come on this podcast and suggest that cheap records can be good, too. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprised by the variety of sounds going on. I mentioned that a little after Take the Highway, but it uh, over and over in this album, I found myself like, oh, this is not, you know, I kind of have this preconceived notion in my head of what Southern rock sounds like. And it's a, there's a lot more to it than, you know, what you may have going on in your head already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I took note of the fact uh, it's going to be very evident on the, the next song that we're going to listen to in a little bit here. But A, I definitely could hear, Lance, why you might gravitate towards this record because you're into all that private press hard rock. And there's definitely some times where they're shredding and it's it's getting into that kind of sound a little bit, you know, with a little southern flair to it of course but i could hear that in some of this record and also just the fact that a lot of these bands these southern rock bands really were meant to be seen experienced live especially in the last 20 30 years i feel like there's this this whole scene of sort of southern rock influenced bands that are kind of like in that jam band circuit but separate from it at the same time (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, from one Southern rock record to another, the, the 
the vibe can change pretty drastically. Like I was saying, Blackfoot and um, Molly Hatchet are, are, you know, almost proto metal hard rock, and the Outlaws and Grinder Switch are a lot more laid back and mellow. But something about the the vibe of of all those bands and where they're coming from, you know, the influences, you know, what it's like to uh, grow up in the South. And, uh, you know, like when you get into the nitty gritty on, on the Marshall Tucker band, it's, it's cool to learn that, you know, uh, Doug Gray and I think it was Toy Caldwell, they came up, you know, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, just a really small town in South Carolina, not far from Greenville, and just like a little west of Columbia, South Carolina, and about a hundred or, or two hundred or so miles northeast of Atlanta, and they were going to the black clubs to see James Brown and the R and B groups of the day, and they were the only white guys in the room. So you can hear that influence. You can hear the you know the repetition and the grooves they they lock in. And I wouldn't call the Marshall Tucker Band funky per se but they certainly knew how to get down. And not only could these guys play together, the Marshall Tucker band and Leonard Skinner and the Allman brothers and the Charlie Daniels band, they all went out on the road so frequently together. Like the Marshall Tucker band at one point was doing like 300 gigs a year (laughs) for an extended period of time. They had a long, illustrious, prolific career and, you know, I'm sure not only to keep things interesting for themselves, uh, but to really kind of blow people's minds. These guys would get on stage with each other and, and jam with each other live, you know, unrehearsed. And, and it was always a, a massive success, as far as I could tell anyway. And, you know, that kind of stuff, you don't see that kind of stuff so much anymore. And it's, it's really kind of not disappointing Uh, yeah let's call it disappointing i I would love to see uh members of contemporary bands you know jamming together loosely like that i think people worry too much nowadays maybe because of social media or the fact that everybody has a camera in their pocket that they're gonna get uh you know screw up or whatever stumble on stage and it's gonna be captured I, i don't know why that that doesn't happen so much anymore but i love the reading about the camaraderie that not only the members of the Marshall Tucker band had with each other, but the, the friendships and the camaraderie that they had with all the other Southern rock bands that they toured with. Like not only did the Allman brothers take the Marshall Tucker band out on the road for the first time, the Marshall Tucker band took Leonard Skinner out on the road for the first time. And then by the time they're, they've reached the West coast on that first tour, Leonard Skinner is a bigger band than the Marshall Tucker band is. And, and they're all okay with that. They're just proud of their Southern brethren. And yeah, it seems like just this band, luckily, you know, for once and finally for once, there's a story of a band where, you know, there's, there's a, you know, unfortunate passings and, and deaths and things, but there wasn't a lot of drama as far as I could tell with these guys. They were just some good old boys who really liked playing music and, and they went out on the road and did it up and released an album a year, you know, almost an album a year for a really extended period of time. And a lot of those albums went gold. One of them went platinum. It's just unbelievable how successful these guys were in their day. I had a professor in college about 10 years ago who was really big Almond Brothers fan. And he was also always talking about like the Tedeschi Trucks band and black crows Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what i was thinking of the 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 bands that the last 20 30 years that are it it feels like they're somewhere between yeah being like these neo southern rock bands and but kind of adjacent or kitty corner to the jam band scene too yeah Uh, so there's still some iteration of that happening absolutely yeah the the black crows and the drive-by truckers i think are like probably the most well-known modern purveyors of the southern rock vibe they're definitely heavily influenced by the the og players but yeah it's you know we host a lot of shows at the roadhouse and a lot of bands a lot of great bands but i rarely see uh members of the headlining band 
uh, hopping on stage with one of the openers or vice versa. Just that kind of stuff just doesn't seem to happen like it used to, you know, with, with these Southern rock bands or even with bands going back to like Hawkwind and the pink fairies jamming together or something like that. You know, I think it would be really cool if uh, more of that went down. Well, Jeremy, do you want to get into some bio of the band? Yeah. Let me go over their bio real quick. Lance touched on a, quite a few of the points there already. So I'll fill in some blanks. Uh, as he mentioned, there's from Spartanburg, South Carolina, Toy Caldwell and his brother, Tommy Caldwell, who would become the bassist in Marshall Tucker band. They were buddies with all the other guys in the band. They'd play football together and shoot hoops and grew up together. Uh, that's George McCorkle on rhythm guitar, Jerry Eubanks playing that flute, and he played sax and keyboards as well, and Doug Gray, the last living member of the original band who was a singer. They all grew up together, hung out, explains a lot of their chemistry. Where's Marshall Tucker? <laughs> oh, get to Marshall. <laughs> So at age 19, Toy joined the Marines, George joined the Navy, and Doug joined the Army. Tommy and Jerry were a little younger than them and did not join the military, and this would have been during the Vietnam conflict. Though, as was alluded to in Peter's title, Jerry's son became a professional Call of Duty player. Yeah. James Eubanks, a.k.a. Clayster. <laughs> yeah. So some, uh, some military ties there. They got back into music when getting back from Vietnam. They added Paul Riddle on the drums and named it Marshall Tucker Band after finding a key with just the name Marshall Tucker on it. Did that classic thing where they just point to a thing and like let's call it that but it uh it would turn out later on that people did some digging and found out marshall tucker was a blind piano tuner who had tuned a piano in the warehouse space that they rehearsed in uh where presumably there were other bands using that space so yeah marshall tucker was a real person he lived to be 99 years old. He just passed last year. I saw that. That's wild. Yeah. I, I also, just a quick side note, I, I don't know where I read this, but at some point the, uh, the guys in the Marshall Tucker band were being interviewed, and the interviewer asked them if they told that story about the key to their rehearsal space and they needed a band name right before their first show. So they just chose Marshall Tucker off the key and they were asked if Marshall Tucker was a real guy. And <laughs> they said, no, not knowing that uh, about the piano tuner and the piano tuner got word of this and he had his lawyer reach out to the band saying, Hey, you can't tell people I'm not alive. I'm losing business over here because everybody thinks I'm dead and I'm still in the business of tuning pianos. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Couldn't Google Marshall Tucker back in 1972, I guess. What you gonna do? Very true. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Well, in 1972, what you could do was play a show in Macon, Georgia, be discovered by Paul Hornsby of Capricorn Studios, and then get signed like the Marshall Tucker band was. Yeah, it was not an oversaturated market with musicians at the time yeah i just wanted to mention a little about capricorn studios because i found it kind of interesting they were originally started or were going to be started as an r&b label kind of centered on otis redding and then otis redding had his untimely passing that made the original idea kind of fall apart but then they got involved with Dwayne Allman and the Allman brothers who kind of 
injected life into it and got it up off the ground and it kind of became a hub for southern rock absolutely and the label was very successful between 1969 and 1979 they released nine plat well they released a lot of records but nine of them went platinum 17 of the albums went gold and they had five gold singles and uh, some of the more well-known artists on the Capricorn label and or ones we're checking out are obviously the Marshall Tucker Band, the Allman Brothers, Cowboy, Grinder Switch, Percy Sledge, Stillwater, Wet Willie, White Witch, and um, Sea Level, which was uh, actually post-Allman Brothers Band that gets kind of into soft rock like Yacht Rock territory. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, this one was produced by Hornsby, who also plays on the record in 19... Well, it was released in 1973 as their debut album. It would go on to be a gold album, hit number 29 on the Billboard charts. And Can't You See became uh, just kind of a classic song for the ages. Uh, it would be covered by Waylon Jennings, Kid Rock... I saw it was featured in a bunch of films, most troublingly, I, Tanya. <laughs> oh, wow. The Tanya Harding story with Margot Robbie. Yeah. Oh, boy. Can't you see what that woman's doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> On the nose. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that it's got a, a mere 210 million plays on Spotify. That's all. Wow. Should, yeah. should be 2 billion. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you count... Uh, all the plays it got before Spotify was a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. <laughs> it's easily there. So in all the way back in high school, back in their uh, their football and basketball buddy days, Tommy Caldwell and Doug Gray actually played in a band called The New Generation. And they uh, put out a Garage Psych 45 on a label called Sonic in 1968 that's worth checking out as well. Much different uh, vibe than... The, what uh, the Marshall Tucker band ended up sounding like. Oh, I can tell that's right in your wheelhouse. Without having heard it, I can tell, Lance. <laughs> you know it, absolutely. It's not as heavy <laughs> as I usually get down with, but it's a good one, and it, it's quite rare. Well, since we can't play that, what song did we want to play from this record next? Hey, Jeremy, how about we play Ramblin'? Let's play Ramblin'. Let's jam it out. Yeah, yeah. This one, like I said, I, I can hear why you, Lance might have gravitated towards moments on this record that, that kind of get a it gets a little heavy with the the shredding no doubt
That song feels like it would not have been out of place on the Blues Brothers set list, the fictitious band. Agreed. Feels like feels like something they could have done. It had like the horn section, was a little bit upbeat. You got various, you know, roots genres influencing the sound. It's a little bit soulful. It's a little bit rock and roll. Yeah, I twisted Lance's arm to feature this one. He wanted to do another slow jammer that was probably a better song, but this one I thought kind of showed uh, a wider uh, degree of what they do. It really captures the jammy side, I thought. Yeah, for those of you wondering now which song I wanted to feature that song, Losing You is another beautiful ballad. It's really, really mellow, laid back. But yeah, I think you're right on, Jeremy. Showcasing the band's versatility uh, by featuring Ramblin' was the right move. Jeremy, I have to say I'm impressed. You're you're growing because sometimes (laughs) on your features – you just go for the ones that appeal to you, and and sometimes you've admitted that it doesn't represent the record fully, the, the selections you've chosen. That's true. I've got a little bit of distance because Lance brought this. So <laughs> uh, yeah, bring myself to do it. It was right. It was the right choice, Jeremy. Two heads are better than one. Yeah, that was a face-melting guitar, though. I I love how both, like technically proficient and just high quality it is but also it feels like kind of fumbly and like it's about to like fall off the rails at any given minute too yeah yeah i think that's why i kind of almost thought yeah it had this sort of like private press outsider quality even though the playing is very good it it almost sounds like it could fall apart at any second (laughs) yeah yeah there's there's definitely something about toys guitar playing and i i wonder I've, I've never played guitar with just my thumb and no pick i can't imagine that that's easy to do and when you're picking that fast with just your thumb there has to be an element it does feel like he's just you know kind of moving as fast as he possibly can to keep up with the band and he's he's keeping up but you're right it's like uh, he's one uh one uh, misstep away from falling off the rails. Well, I guess to jump back into the bio, as Lance mentioned, they did some extensive touring through the 70s. That was kind of their heyday of popularity. And then they were struck by a pretty awful tragedy. Uh, 1980, the bassists and brother of toy caldwell tommy caldwell was killed in an auto accident at age 30 and this was one month after toy and tommy's brother tim had died in a car accident himself at age 25 so yeah toy lost two of his brothers to auto accidents within a month in 1980 absolutely terrible yeah and it like, I didn't read anything about his reaction to it, but you can see in the albums Marshall Tucker Band did after 1980, his input of songs, like, falls off a cliff, and he leaves the band. Uh, by 1983, he's out of the band by his own choice, not kicked out, obviously. Yeah, the... the output the early output the first one two three four five six seven albums all either went gold or platinum and then you're into 1979 with running like the wind and by the time you get to 10th the 10th album in 1980 yeah the the it seems like they're losing their steam and then uh yeah after the passing of the two caldwell caldwell brothers they put out an album called dedicated course uh dedicated to the passing of their uh band members and the band members brother and yeah the the band goes on and and continues on to this day uh with different members than the original lineup uh, as we maybe mentioned already before doug gray is the the singer and um yeah the lead singer and vocalist of the band is the only original member uh still touring with uh the marshall tucker band 
Yeah. And it looks like they were putting out albums. The last album I saw was in 2009. So they continued putting out albums for many years after that. Toy himself passed away in 1993 due to cardiac arrest. And yeah. So yeah. Marshall Tucker band lives on through Doug Gray and and uh, the new band members backing him. All right. Well, Sean, I, I think we've reached that point where I forget what it is you do. <laughs> I, now, I can't remember what, what we turn to you and ask at this point. What it, would you say it is you do here, Sean? <laughs> Uh, I, I like to think of myself as the idea man, the kind of wild card of the podcast. Um, <laughs> occasionally I've been known to give recommended similar albums though, if that's what you're leading up to. I, I think that's it. Yeah. Let's, I mean, if it's not, we can fix it in post, but let's go ahead and, and have you do that for now. That would be yeah. great. Let's run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I'm standing at attention here, Sean. (laughs) A couple of these were mentioned in Lance's mega Southern rock list earlier, but here's one that was not a band called faith. Their self-titled album faith on Brown bag records from 1973, great obscure Southern rock band that had the hard rock elements, but also got pretty funky at times. Second recommendation, Wet Willie, Keep On Smiling from 1974, as mentioned previously by Lance, and a really good Southern rock band. Again, they got, they could do the country, they could do the hard rock, but they could also groove. Yeah, that's a band name I've seen hundreds of times in the bins. I avoided them for a long time because I really actively hate most of their artwork but once you get past that and actually drop the needle the records are really really good i mean it's you learned that with herbie man push push yeah exactly just to describe for the folks listening who may not have heard or have seen the wet willy album keep on smiling it's a really confusing album cover because there's just a picture of an older African-American gentleman with a harmonica and an acoustic guitar on the majority of the album cover. Uh, it's like a sepia-toned old photo. He looks like he's busking in front of a pharmacy or something. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's a picture of the band Wet Willie in color, and it takes up about a quarter of the upper right-hand <laughs> portion of the jacket. Makes absolutely no sense. I have no idea why anybody would ever uh, do that with their album art. But yes, I had the same apprehension with Wet Willie at first too, Sean, because what the heck are you getting into <laughs> with a band called Wet Willie and, and that album cover? Yeah, and if you uh, if you find their first record from 71, it's somehow an album cover that's even more gross than Electric Larry Land by the Butthole Surfers. <laughs> and wow, that's saying something. No doubt. So y'all can look that up in your spare time. But uh, speaking of Southern rock bands with mostly terrible artwork but really, really good music, let's talk about the Ozark Mountain Daredevils and their album yes. It'll Shine When It Shines from 1974. I think at one point I was going to do a Jackie Blue for a Patreon episode. And you told me you want to save the Ozark Mountain Daredevils for a full episode. Yeah, I think they deserve a full episode. Jackie Blue is like one of my all-time favorite songs, though. I love that track. Hell yeah. And they have a ton of material that sounds nothing like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you should hear the Smashing Pumpkins version of Jackie Blue. Whoa. Okay. I'll check it out. <laughs> oh, boy. Final recommendation, one that was mentioned earlier, Black Oak, Arkansas, High on the Hog from 1973. It's a great album. Yeah. There you go. Do I have time to chime in with uh, any additions, or are we too short on time? I'd yeah, be disappointed no. if you didn't chime in. <laughs> uh, were you finished, though, first, Sean? I guess yes, I should ask you. I'm, I'm done. All right. Chime in away. So uh, on the cheap tip, as I mentioned, not all Southern rock records are inexpensive and qualify for the criteria of this podcast, but many great ones are, including the Allman Brothers, Brothers and Sisters album. You'll recognize the hits Ramblin' Man and Jessica from that album. 
and also Greg Allman's solo album uh, Laid Back is recommended in, from the Allman's camp. He does a great version of Midnight Rider, the Allman Brothers classic on that record. It's fantastic. Many of the other Allman Brothers records, like Live at the Fillmore and Eat a Peach, are more expensive, but are also amazing. I I was just going through my collection and cataloged that one, and I bought it 10 years ago. Pretty decent copy for six bucks. <laughs> the, the Eat a Peach, that is. Uh, but that's not, not going to be the case anymore. <laughs> not so much. Some old school dealers may underprice that just, you know, based on their past experience with selling that album, but that's an easy album to sell for 15 or $20 these days in good shape. It's a great album. Absolutely. So it was fun revisiting that. Yeah. Ripper. It's pretty out there. Yeah, definitely. On the harder side of Southern rock, I highly recommend strikes by Blackfoot. Blackfoot was a uh, Native American Southern rock band. Again, the track on the heavier side, the song Road Fever is highly recommended. Also on the heavier side is Molly Hatchet. Molly Hatchet rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Molly Hatchet's album covers make them seem like they would be a metal band, and they are definitely not a heavy metal band, although they do have some boneheaded hard rock vibes to them. I think both the self-titled album and Flirting with Disaster have some great moments on them. And and by Johnny Winter. Uh, Johnny Winter, obviously, Texas albino blues musician, primarily blues rock guy, but that album and has uh, some very Southern rock-esque moments on it. And outside of other albums... I highly recommend checking out that aforementioned Grand Opera House video from 1973. That was kind of a mind blower for me. I've heard this album, but seeing uh, the Marshall Tucker Band perform live was, uh, yeah, just took things to the next level for me. And there's also a really endearing vintage Tom Snyder interview that three of the guys from Marshall Tucker did that's really sweet. It, you could really tell these guys just really enjoyed each other's company. And they're almost just like a band of brothers and the way they interact with each other and, and their personalities really shine through in that interview. And they're just, like I said, just some good old boys that are, you know, really, really killer musicians and super humble, you know, Spartan burgers. It sounds the opposite of the public image limited interview with Tom Snyder. <laughs> That's a rough one, man. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, that it's the polar opposite <laughs> well very good lance thank you for all the information that you've brought to this episode for doing your homework uh you're you, you know like you said it, it's time w that we've featured a southern rock album and we've covered a lot of southern rock now but while you're with us is there anything that you would like for people to check out more that you do with permanent records or any anything, anything you do with brown acid or anything along those lines? Yeah, sure. I, I stay very, very busy all the time. But uh, aside from what we regularly do at the Permanent Records Roadhouse, where we host live music five nights a week, sometimes, most times, two shows a night, I recently started a YouTube channel. That's a, a new <laughs> venture for me that's been a lot of fun, where I share both records from my personal collection and records that have come into the shop and and also advice as a record store owner for uh, aspiring record store owners. Uh, we started doing whatnot auctions on the whatnot app and we're uh, actually for the first time starting to sell some sealed records and some other items on eBay. So check us out. You can find us at permanent records roadhouse there. And in the new year, uh, in 2024, I am continuing to work with Riding Easy Records on brown acid comps, but we're also dipping our toes uh, into the Southern Rock reissue game. We're going to be doing a Southern Rock compilation similar to uh, the brown acid series, but featuring more privately issued Southern Rock bands or privately pressed Southern Rock records, I should say. And uh, we're doing full length reissues by a bunch of bands. Uh, that self-released albums that are all in the Southern rock genre. And just to rattle off a few of them, we're going to be doing the Tennessee River Crooks album, an album by Mad Jack, Southern Steel, Crossroad, Max Creek Band, 
Haywire, Mammoth, Albatross, Skydog, uh, and a band from Austin, Texas called Too Smooth uh, that has a bit of a Southern rock vibe to them as well. And uh, yeah, uh, that's all. <laughs> that's it. Wow, you are truly you're truly up to a lot. Yeah. And we, I, I want to. I think we'd all like to thank you for uh, giving us a shout out on one of those YouTube videos pretty recently. Oh, I just did in the most recent one, actually, too. Um, there's a band on, uh, I, I showcased a bunch of 45s from my personal collection. There's a band from Indiana called Magi that uh, did a 45 and an LP called Win or Lose. And they recorded that 45 uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, as a matter of fact. So At uh, Uncle Dirty's? That's the one. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's where Jeremy and I are still at. Uh, you know, Sean bailed on us for Philadelphia. How could you, <laughs> There's Sean? a few more records. There's a few, <laughs> few, few more records recorded in Philly, so it's <laughs> it's uh, it's always noteworthy when something's out of Kalamazoo. I also True. heard it's always sunny in Philadelphia. No, it's actually always sunny in Kalamazoo. That's a common misconception. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. As evidenced from our recent James Blood Almer episode, where it was a blizzard here. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it. We've seen the sun once so far this year. Oh, so. brutal, man! I do not miss living in the Midwest. My heart goes out to you guys. Oh. It has created a lot of great private press music, though, hasn't it? The, the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> you can attest to that, right, Lance? Absolutely, a lot of good. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of good time, or plenty of time, I should say. Uh, in those winter months to hunker down and just go jam with your buddies in a, in a barn or a basement or an attic somewhere and just forget about the world outside that is too bleak to, to approach sometimes. Yeah. It makes you wonder if these Southern rock guys, like uh, they're creating this, you have to figure it's often a, a sunny day where they're at. <laughs> so the music compels them, you know, and, uh, you know, back in the day too, like a lot of what they're doing, you know, those outdoor music festivals and some of the shows that they were playing outside is a big part of that scene. And the weather, uh, in the Southern part of the continental U S is, it really kind of lends itself to, to beer drinking and, you know, hanging out in a park or amphitheater somewhere, just listening to five or seven guys jam on for hours. And that's what they did. Well, it sounded like for our last selection, you wanted to strip things down and, and not have it be five or seven guys. Uh, we were going to go with a more bare bones track. Yes, absolutely. This is a track uh, called Ab's Song, written by Toy Caldwell for his wife, Abby. He and, uh, and Abby were married in 1969 and were together until his untimely passing in 1993. Just as a shout out to my little sister named Abby, I wanted to feature this one, well, also mostly because it's an amazing song and it uh, showcases yet another side of, uh, of the Marshall Tucker band. But yeah, shout out to my little sister, Abby. This song gives me the distinct impression that they might have been John Prine fans. Uh, no doubt. They had to have been. That's uh, a, a very astute observation, Sean. Well, Lance, thank you so much for bringing us a, a Southern rock record and having so much to say about it. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing what you dig up next. Thank you, listeners, for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Of course, you can always check us out on Patreon over at patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast for additional content, bonus episodes. We're about to record an episode on the Swanee quintet we're going south again for that one so that'll be out soon check us out on social media facebook i'd buy that for a dollar instagram at i'd buy that podcast my name is peter cook my name is jeremy ruggles my name is sean hartman and my name is lance and i'm a proud patron of the i'd buy that for a dollar podcast patreon and i think you should be too oh this is absong if I died 23, won't you bury me in the sunshine? Please let me know that you're still mine. 
Grows old.